Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 117 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app or at aarecoveryinterviews.com to listen to them all. My guest on today's podcast is Jason S., a Cajun from South Louisiana whose miserable childhood was punctuated by drinking at age 8 and smoking crack by 14. His predilection for rageful and violent behavior was fueled by daily use of alcohol and drugs. His life spun rapidly out of control when he stole a car at gunpoint and led police on a high-speed chase through the streets of New Orleans. Jason was sent to prison where he managed his fear and boredom by staying high every day. His one attempt at prison escape ended after an eight-hour pursuit by guards on a horseback who caught him in the undergrowth of a nearby forest. When he was released after 13 years behind bars, Jason went right back to his old life of drinking and using, during which time he had two abusive marriages that ended in divorce and two children in the balance. As his life spiraled downward, Jason somehow managed to keep a job where he happened to know a few men who had gotten sober. By the time he hit bottom in early 2021, Jason's meager knowledge of rehab was enough to inspire a drive to Houston, where he knew no one, and detoxed alone in a motel room for seven days. Emerging shaky and broken, he was somehow able to get a bed in a state-sponsored men's rehab facility, and later, a sober living house. It was in those places that Jason found and embraced the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. After the sordid life he had led, Jason knew that the odds were stacked heavily against his ever staying sober. But, so far, he has beaten those odds by establishing and maintaining a close connection to AA. Two years sober, Jason has worked the steps with a sponsor and goes to daily meetings where he has developed many relationships with other men. Prayer, reading AA literature, and being of service to his groups and sponsees have all girded his ability and resolve to stay sober one day at a time. As you listen to Jason's story on today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews, I believe you will sense the humble nature of the wisdom he has earned at such a high cost. For listeners with limited tenures of sobriety, there is much to learn from his words. So I invite you to relax and enjoy the next hour and 10 minutes with my friend and AA brother, Jason S. I'm Jason. I'm alcoholic. Hi, Jason. Hi, Howard. Thanks so much for joining me here on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Good to sit down with you. You and I have not had the opportunity to really talk too much in the months that you've been around the meetings here in Houston. Right. And now I understand that you're moving to Chicago. Yeah, in 13 days. So how long, how long did you live in Houston? So I've been in Houston since um, March 29th after being up all night the previous night, which was March 28th of 2021. I stayed up all night drinking and doing cocaine. I was laced with fentanyl, possibly close to overdose, I felt like. And uh, I had said to myself that, um, well, myself and other people on social media, uh-huh. that I, if I lived through the night, I'd find a rehab in the morning. So March 29th, um, I drove. I got my car. I was in New Orleans, and I was living on a friend's couch. Uh-huh. And I drove from New Orleans to Houston 
And on the way, I started making calls to find to look for a rehab. And I didn't find one until a week later. I stayed in the hotel for a week, and then I went to a mental health unit for a week, and then I found a rehab in Houston, and that's, that's how long I've been here. Did you know anybody uh, in the recovery community? Did you have any ideas of where to go? I didn't know anybody. It was actually through the help of TikTok, people helped me find, uh, find rehab and whatnot, because I was a, a TikTok social media influencer, and I used that social media following. They used to follow me as a drunk Cajun in the French quarters, and then and, and they helped me get sober. What's it like to have to have that, that kind of that kind of moniker on yourself to, especially now that you're sober. They, they, you were the drunk Cajun, and now you're sober how long? Um, a couple of weeks ago, made two years. So my sobriety date's March 30th, because I was still high March 29th. Um, so March 30th was my first day, not high or drunk. Of 2021. Of 2021. So until that day, you had the legitimate title to the people you knew as a key influencer. Yeah. As the drunk Cajun. Yeah, I had, I had almost 100,000 followers on TikTok that would watch me drink every day in the French quarters um, with homeless people. And me not realizing that I was also homeless. I had a car. I didn't think I was homeless. But, Why were you doing that? Uh, I was actually doing the TikTok to make money uh -huh. to continue to buy alcohol and drugs. They, you know, they say, they say uh, us alcoholics are smart. And I, <laughs> I guess I thought I was smart because when TikTok came around, I saw it as a way to make money, more extra money because I mean I had a job making no more. I never, you know, made twenty five thousand dollars a year, uh -huh. which is not enough to support alcohol and cocaine habit. Yeah, or living actually. Or living, so yeah. I had to find other ways. So you you actually used the disease of alcoholism and drug addiction to make money from TikTok to be able to afford more alcohol and drugs. Yeah, I would I would get people would gift me money. It would send money Cash App, Venmo. I would also scam people. Uh -huh. I would make fake fundraisers like I was uh, feeding the homeless, which I would feed the homeless, but if I'd raise $1,000, I'd keep 500. I'd just take 500 to buy food. Hmm. You know what's interesting about your story, just right out the gate, Jason, is that this behavior was not all that long ago. Most of the time when I'm interviewing people, I know you've listened to some of these interviews, mm -hmm. people are talking about doing the kind of stuff you're talking about but it's been 20, 25, 30 years ago. Right. That's why it's so important for me to be able to interview guys with less sobriety. I mean, you know, maybe double digit, but certainly the single digits, and even people to as few as a couple years. Mm -hmm. It's so much more recent in your past than it is for a lot of people who had those kind of uh, lifestyles, let's say. Yeah. So what was there going on that made you want to stop drinking? I mean, it sounds like you had a pretty good gig going on there. Well, yeah, I did. But, you know, at the same time, I, I didn't have a place, a definite place to live on uh, mm -hmm. friends, couches, bedrooms. And I was constantly going more and more in uh, child support debt because I was a debt because I was a deadbeat dad that wasn't paying child support. So I was probably up to around... Um, probably about $60,000 behind on child support. I mean, my life was just, it was completely out of, like out of control, unmanageable, which is weird because, you know, in 2007, I got out of prison from a 13-year prison sentence. Mm -hmm. And you, I would have thought that would have been unmanageable, but I, I, even then I still kept going after, from 2007 to 2021. So there's a lot of stuff to unpack in, in your story about 
prison and about being on the streets and about doing what you did to support yourself. Mm -hmm. You grew up in New Orleans? No, so I grew up, I'm originally from a small town called Stevensville, Louisiana. It's a bayou town right outside of Morgan City, Louisiana, which is an oil field town. Hmm. What was your childhood like there? I guess at about eight, nine months old, my, my parents gave me up um, to my grandparents. Mm. My parents got divorced and my mom was always a, a drinker and a drug user. And I guess my dad just didn't want to, um, didn't want a kid. He never, you know, I was yeah. accident. it. I was accident, it, baby. So they gave me to my grandparents. I don't know, I just remember, you know, my childhood was growing up, my grandmother, grandfather. My grandfather didn't really talk much. He was a retired police officer mm -hmm. and uh, he drank a lot, he, you know, I, I don't know if he was an alcoholic or not, but he drank a lot and, and so I was growing up. I remember, I remember times he, you know, he had a gun to his head. One time he had a gun to his head. My, maybe I might have been eight. Mm. Um, and he tried to kill himself. My grandma was on his back. And then I had an uncle that lived in the backyard in a trailer. And he was a, an extreme drug addict. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I can't breathe it. Um, back then it was free basin before it was crack. He was, he was really big on free basin and stuff. Mm. Then when crack came out, he started that. And then at 14, he got me started on crack. So I, I started drinking around eight or nine years old with him. Mm -hmm. and so he was always the big, uh, you know, you hear people talk about sponsors in addiction. He was my sponsor in addiction. He taught me how to do all the drugs. Now, what was it like for them trying to raise you? Let's say from their perspective, what, what did it feel like you think to them? From their perspective, I mean, so my grandma, I mean, they loved me. You know, yeah. I guess I, I, I left it out. So my childhood was, they loved me. My grandpa was a real silent type. My grandmother was a real, um, real outgoing Cajun from South Louisiana. And she treated me like I was her sixth kid. They had five kids huh. and she treated me like I was her sixth kid. I mean, she spoiled me to death. You know, I could do, I could do, a, a, do no wrong in her eyes. These are your, your dad's parents. My dad's parents, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did your dad ever come back into your life after that? So my dad, you know, real rarely. I, I, he, I, didn't, spend, I didn't visit him much at all. Um, he ended up, when I was young, moving to Texas, Dallas area, and I might visit him once a year. And my mom lived close, and I'd visit her once a month or whatever. And she had remarried, and that was kind of an abusive thing when I'd go visit them. Hmm. How, how did that make you feel when you were a kid and you were seeing your dad once a year and you're seeing your mom maybe once a month? How did that affect you as, when you were a kid? I don't know. Before I was a teenager, I never, I, I, I like to think, you know, as far as I can remember, I, I didn't think it was a big deal. Uh -huh. until, until, I guess, as a teenager and the, the way I started acting, the things I started doing. And even then, I didn't realize the things I was doing until later. People were like, you don't think maybe, you know, I acted out that way because of, and now I see that that's why I was, you know, I, I felt abandoned. In many respects, you were. Yeah. Whether it's to grandparents or even put into a foster home, that's still abandonment. And uh, yeah, one of my parents was in foster homes and she was a girl. And it was horrible, horrible, just absolutely. And you know what it does is it warps, warps that generation. Then every generation after that has has issues with it. Mm -hmm. So what did that do to your uh, to your school and to to your relationships? I guess so. School wise, um, you know, like I said, I started drinking around ten, and I, first time I smoked crack was fourteen. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, it's not like 
obviously I didn't just become an immediate crackhead. Yeah, I was 14 right. with no paycheck. I mean, you can't <laughs> become a crackhead with no paycheck. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'd go to school. I made average grades. I think mm-hmm. ninth grade, I, I, I made straight A's in ninth grade. And then 10th grade, I started making C's and D's. Um, I never failed a, a grade, uh-huh. but I did drop out in the 12th grade just because I missed too many days. Mm. And as far as relationships, um, I'm not sure if you mean relationships. Or with, just with other people. And, you know, we can talk about relationships yeah. with women, too. But um, just we, did you run with a certain crowd or, or what did your life look like? I kind of ran with all crowds. Yeah. I was an athlete, but I hung out with jocks. I hung out with heads, which is headbangers. I just had friends of every genre, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was kind of a class clown. Just yeah. like, I mean, you know me now, and I still <laughs> like to make people laugh. Yeah, so. yeah. I was, that, I was that way, too, when I was a kid, because it was the only, if I could get people to laugh at me, I knew that they, there was a certain amount of acceptance in with that laughter. So that was... Uh, so it sounds to me like like you were yeah. you were the same kind of guy. So you dropped out in twelfth grade. What you're seventeen, eighteen years old at that yeah, point. Yeah, I was seventeen. Seventeen years old. What were your plans when you dropped out? Um, I didn't have any plans. So I guess we can go back a little bit to. Um, sure. So at seventeen, I uh, I stole four thousand dollars from my grandparents out of out of their safe, mm-hmm. and uh, they had a safe. And I stole 4000 And I think right before that, so I had money in the bank that my dad, I guess, gave my grandparents as, as I was growing up. And I think it was like 4000 So I stole the 4000 I kind of justified it because, okay, I'm still in the 4000 but they're going to get it back because I have it in the bank. Yeah. And I stole that, and I smoked it in crack in four days. I mean, me and a couple other people, uh, one of my best friends at the time and, and, and his uncle and whatnot, is crack that expensive, or was it that expensive back then? No, it wasn't that expensive. We just smoked that much. Yeah, we had a lot of people going in and out, and uh, we were just in some crackhead apartment. So after four days, uh, the money was gone, and I spent a couple more days on the streets before I finally I went to a police station and turned myself in, because I figured surely they called the cops on me. And they didn't. Uh, there was no charges filed at the police station or whatever. But so the cops still, the policemen, they brought me back to my grandparents. And uh, my grandmother, uh, they asked if she wanted to press charges. And mm-hmm. she asked me, she said, you think we should press charges or you could go live with your mom? Mm. And I said, you can do whatever you want to do. You know, I didn't care. I was just a young punk. And, uh, so you didn't mind going to jail? I didn't care. I think it was around that time I, had, I was really troubled. Yeah. And I felt like I wanted to be in jail for some reason. And I don't know why, but I just wanted to be away. Self-destructive, sort of. Yeah, I was really self-destructive. And uh, so she made me go live with my mom at 17. Mm-hmm. And that just didn't last long. And my mom lived in Baton Rouge, and I went to Baton Rouge. And uh, it, I just got even crazier then. So I just missed too many days, and mm-hmm. I got pulled out. She, I, I dropped out of school. And then my mom one day gave me the option to uh, either get a GED or I had to move out of her apartment at 17. So I, I went to GED school, then I then I dropped out of that, and then, uh, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's a lot before you're 18 years old, isn't it? Yeah. Now, was, was your mom, at the time that you were living with her, was she drinking heavily or drinking... Uh, Alcoholically, well, they, yeah, they, her and my stepdad drank and they smoked pot a lot. So, yeah, how did you fit into that whole picture, in that household with 
uh, mother and a stepfather who were drinking and smoking dope. Did you feel like you fit in or were you still feeling on the outside? Well, I guess I still felt on the outside. I don't know. I mean, I, I did my thing, but I didn't do it with them. Right, I get it. And she was she was a parent. I mean, she she wasn't going to let me drink and stuff in, in, in her apartment. Mm-hmm. So you were smoking a lot of crack at the time. Yeah. Even then, not... Uh, I wasn't a crack addict. I don't. I don't believe I was. I wasn't a crack addict. I was a drug head because if I didn't have crack, then I was just doing any other drug I could have, or a cocaine addict. Yeah. What would be considered a crack head? Uh, I mean, is that somebody who gets stoned on crack every day? Well, I drank every day. You drank every day. I drank every day. Yeah. So I guess for me to be a crack addict, I would have had to do crack every day, or, or more than uh, more than I did. Yeah. I mean, I would go on, you know, day spurts or week spurts, but then I wouldn't smoke crack for six months. Yeah. But I never went that long without alcohol. So you were drinking, you were smoking crack, and then what were the circumstances that led up to you having to go to prison? It was back to the point to where my mom was kicking me out. She kicked you out. Well, okay. she was on the verge of kicking me mm-hmm. out. I had to find somewhere to go. And I, I think it was a, one Friday night, I, I was out drinking. Uh, that's when it was 40 ounces of, of, of Old English or something, you know, mm-hmm. just uh, with some friends. And I came home late that night and uh, I stole her keys to um, her car. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I took off in it. Mm. And I, uh, I was in Baton Rouge and I kind of jaw rode all night in Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't even, I didn't have a plan. I didn't know what I was doing. I just was drunk and I took her car. And I ended up in New Orleans and um, I ran out of gas. So when I went to looking through the car for, for any kind of money or anything I could find to sell, there was a gun in the glove box, mm-hmm. which was my stepdad's gun, a twenty two revolver. Mm-hmm. And I ended up going in a, um, a Dale Champs, which was a grocery store parking lot, and robbing somebody out of their car. So you took their car at gunpoint. Yeah, I robbed somebody at gunpoint out of their car. Still drunk from the night before. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I was caught within 10 minutes. The police were chasing me on a 40-minute high-speed chase. Now, is this what you remember, or were you in a blackout and told that this is what you did? No, no, I remember it. You remember it? What were you thinking at the time that you were trying to outrun the police? What did you think was going to be the outcome of you trying to escape the police? <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't. I, I, I can. I, I can honestly say I don't mean that was so. Now I feel like now it was so long ago. I don't remember. I mean, obviously, I thought I was going to get away, <laughs> and I laugh about it. But also, I was kind of hoping that um, I was just kind of hoping I pissed them off enough to when they did catch me, they just shoot me because I wanted to die. Oh. Suicide by cop. Yeah. Oh, that's tough. A tough way to feel. Yeah, I got arrested in Jefferson. It was that was in um it was right outside of New Orleans in a uh, um Kenner, Louisiana, which is Jefferson Parish. Yeah. In charge with it's called armed robbery or first degree robbery. Yeah, it's a felony and it carries anywhere from a minimum of five years to ninety nine years. And I got sentenced uh after being in I ended up pleading guilty and took a eighteen year sentence. Hmm. And, and 18-year sentence fell under an old law called the Act 138, which is, it just means you do half of it in prison and half of it on a good time parole supervision. Mm, okay, so nine years behind bars. Most of the nine years, but the whole time I was in prison, I was, I was high the whole time. Mm. And uh, I got in so much trouble in there that I ended up doing 13 instead of nine because I kept losing that good time. 
So my date just kept pushing back and back. You know, some of the people I've interviewed for the podcast, I know because you've listened, you may have heard their stories, but people like Tom D and uh, some others who've been to prison, um, you know, people thinking that they could get sober in prison because they wouldn't be able to drink and they wouldn't be able to use drugs. But he set me straight on that, that virtually anything that you want, you can still get. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I, I've got, like I said, I don't think in, in the 13 years I was in prison, I don't think I ever went more than two days without without getting high. Huh. And, and I mean anything. I mean, you can get guards. You could pay guards or, or people have people come visit them, bring stuff in. Mm. If it's, it's funny because, if you know, you do build up like a brotherhood with a lot of guys in prison. And I had some friends, mm -hmm. but I guarantee I was voted least likely to succeed, succeed when released. <laughs> like nobody, everybody knew, like I stayed high way more than anybody else in there. And them guys for sure thought I'd be right back. So when you were staying high, were you just isolating in your cell or, or what were you, or, or were you out in the prison population? Yeah, I was out. I was never an isolator. My alcoholism, my drug addictions, whatever, I was never a... I was, I was always an outgoing person. So you were that same good time Charlie behind bars that you were in the bars yeah. that you were in before yeah. you got in trouble? Yeah. Wow. Now, I could be real fun one minute and want to fight the next minute, yeah. but it's still going to be out. It's not going to be. And it's all going to be, be as a result of drinking or yeah. getting high. Now, when you say getting high, I'm assuming drugs more often than alcohol? Or well, in prison, it was all drugs. All drugs? In prison, yeah. There's no, I mean, people make, which, you, you know, hooch. you heard of hooch, yeah. yeah. But that's, that doesn't get made a whole lot in prison. It's, it's way easier to get drugs. So what is it like being in prison for 13 years? It depends on what year, you know. I mean, it was always bad. Yeah. But it was, I adapted, yeah. but I lived in constant fear. And not fear that I showed, but constant fear. Um, of being hurt or killed? Yeah, hurt, killed, raped. Uh, you know, I don't know. There was some bad times in there. And I, 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 don't, I don't really know how to explain it. I mean, you know, they had times where, where I mean, I would fight, mm -hmm. but they had times, I mean, it, it was just, it was, I didn't constantly live in fear. I don't know how to explain it, but I lived in fear. Yeah. I asked that question because I don't really personally have any frame of reference there, but I've known enough people who have been to state prison to know that if your life is going to change, it's either going to change for the better or the worse. Yeah. Yeah. My, my life changed for the worse, for sure. So, I mean, you know, my whole time in prison, you, you, got, you got a couple of choices you can make when you go to prison. You could just be quiet and do your time, which is not what I did. And if I would have did that, I might have experienced a lot less uh, trouble in there. Mm. Instead, I chose to I chose to get high. I chose to gamble. I chose to get involved in anything that I wasn't supposed to get involved in, whether it was a a riot or whatever. You mm. know what I mean? And because of that, it drew a lot. That draws a lot more attention to yourself. So you were you were put away initially for 18 years. At nine years, you were turned down for parole. It's not a, um, you don't go up for like a, in front of a parole board. Um, it, it's the 138, so it's a good time parole supervision. It's kind of like you're sentenced to 18 years, and for every day you're in there, you earn, you earn days off of your time, right? So what happens is when you get to nine years, you've earned nine years. And you don't go in front of a board. You just automatically get released. So to stay in 13 instead of nine 
you were not piling up those additional days. Right, because any time I would get what's called a write-up, a prison write-up for getting in trouble, they would uh, take like 30 days or 90 days of good time. It sounds like kind of a hopeless situation. Yeah, for for a guy that didn't know how to stay to that, that didn't know how to stay to itself, it, it was it was really getting it was it would just get more and more hope, hopeless. Yeah, I mean, it had got so bad, you know. I mean, in 1999, I tried to escape because I just felt like I was never gonna get out. Hmm. What What did you do? What happened? Um. So you go out in these prisons, and prisons, some prisons, you go out in these fields, these big garden gardens and you go in the woods and chop trees down and then once you clear out a section of trees you make gardens and i just uh took off running one day what happened so when you take off running they uh they set up a perimeter whenever you're out there working right so it's, it's a it's a what they call a line pusher one guard he just walks around he doesn't have a a weapon or anything he just walks around making sure everybody's working and then you have four guards in the perimeter. Mm-hmm. And those four guards sit on horses with an eyesight, like a box around the workers. Mm-hmm. And they each have a rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were working in woods, so when I when I ran, they got some shots off. But obviously, it, I'm running through a bunch of trees. It, it, yeah. Obviously, I mean, I went, it's really hard to get hit. <laughs> but it was a possibility. You were running, did you have any idea where you were running to? <laughs> I was running, well, the prison was not far, just a couple of miles from a casino. Yeah. So my plan was to get to the casino and steal a car from the casino. But I never made it that far. How far did you get? Um, I mean, I, got, I, was, I was in the woods for eight hours, but I never got farther than a mile. I had to hide. Yeah. Because um, what happens when you take off running, they'll, they'll, they'll holler, they'll shoot. Yeah, and then once you're out of eyesight, they they get all the inmates together, bring them in, and then they set up search teams. So it gives you about 15, 20 minutes head start on them. Hmm. But I mean, I was kind of just lost in the woods. They got out with dogs and stuff, and I could hear them out in the woods, and I could kind of see them, and I'd be hiding behind trees and hiding in the mud on the ground. And eventually, after eight hours, they just got me. Just just gave up. Well, I was on the ground kind of burying the leaves and one of them actually stepped on me. <laughs> so It's hard to imagine you, you and I sitting here right now where we're at because you and I just came out of a really, a really cool meeting. And I've, I've heard you share in this meeting about, about your life. I saw you at the retreat and, uh, and, and know that you've uh, had a really difficult time, and, but you've been sober now two years. And as I hear a story like yours, it puts so much more of a sharper edge on the difference between sobriety and life before sobriety. Yeah. Some people make a gradual shift into sobriety. Others come from the edge. I mean, they're off, almost off the cliff when they decide to get sober. Yeah, like me. Yeah. So you were the you were hanging you were hanging on to the edge of the cliff at that point, huh? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, because like all the stuff I'm telling you about in prison, yeah, um, I got out in 2007, right? Uh-huh. And then from 2007 to 2021, I, I mean, I never picked up a pistol again and robbed somebody, but I drank the whole time and 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 I did drug cocaine mostly the whole time. Yeah. And my life really never changed. But other than, you know, I mean, I worked and stuff, but, uh, I wasn't a very good employee or anything. So you get out of prison after 13 years, and then you've got 14 years until you stop drinking. Mm-hmm. And during the 14 years, you're 
you're just drinking and getting high when you want. You're working yeah. to support yourself. Were you yeah. married at the time? Yeah. So I got, well, no, I got married. You know, I got married. Um, when I got out of prison, I started getting, uh, I got one woman pregnant right away, just a, a one-night stand. Uh-huh. And then the next year I got married and I got, and she got pregnant for my son. And then I, I was married twice. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I mean, I was a horrible husband. I was a verbally abusive, sometimes physically uh, abusive and a horrible dad. Yeah. And just, I mean, I don't know, just as, as bad as it can get, it just kept getting, like I was in more, I felt like I was probably in more of a prison after I was free than when I was in prison in my own head. Yeah. The prison you were in in your head sounds like it was worse than the one where you were behind the bars. Yeah. So knowing what you know and the work that you've done in AA, how hard was it for you to make amends when you had to go make amends? Honestly, most of them, they weren't hard for me to want to do. Right. But some of them are still like, you know, um, I have two kids. I have one son that I spend a lot of time with right now. Uh-huh. And I have a daughter that I haven't seen in a year since I went to make my men's with her, you know? Uh-huh. And uh and I still struggle with, with trying to you know, she kinda ignores me and I kinda uh I kinda don't make as much of look you know, it's uh-huh. probably the one thing I probably still don't make as much of an effort to uh to write because I just feel like it's easier. Yeah. Because she hates me, and I just choose to let her hate me. But I, I, I know I need to work on that more. Well, and there's a lot of healing that's done to the family when somebody stays sober beyond just the first weeks, months, or even a couple of years. But as you start to get into some really serious sobriety and really serious recovery, you know, you do your own thing. You let her have her life. You have your life. And then who knows? Before you know it, she might emerge back in your life. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So from the time that you got put into prison until the time you got sober, we're talking about 27 years. Is that right? Would that be about yeah, right? Yeah, well, from 18 to, uh, to, to 44. So during the 14 years, you're married twice. Right. You mentioned being verbally abusive and sometimes physically abusive. Yeah. Were those always while you were under the influence? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did you know what you were doing? Um, what do you mean? I mean, one of the advantages of being a blackout drinker or drug user is that you've got a reason why you might have done what you did. If not a reason, you've, you don't have to remember it and feel from it. Yeah, I remember all of it. I, I, yeah. I haven't really blacked out that many times in my life, and, and I've been drinking a long time, and I hear guys talk about these blackouts, and I, I didn't experience a lot of blackouts, so I do remember... So you do remember. So if I said to you, at the times when you were worse to your wives or acting the worst to people around you, obviously you're drunk and you're impaired judgment and you've got all that other stuff going on. But what were you thinking as, as, you, were, as you were acting out like that? I wanted to hurt them because they hurt me. You know, I, I've talked about this to people before. Um, and you know, the old saying, hurt people, hurt people. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was really true. Um, I just want, I want to, if, if somebody hurt me, um, and I wasn't abusive as far as I, I didn't care about controlling my wife or my ex-wife. If they didn't do what I told them to do, I wasn't that kind of man. Yeah. But like if she cursed me out or got in my face, then I would just see red. I'd want, I'd want to freaking hurt her bad. And, and it would be, whether it's with a woman or a, a guy out in the bar or whatever, I just, I've, I've had, I've always had this deep rooted rage in me. So these are people calling you out on your shit. 
yeah. so to speak. Whether it's a wife calling you out on your drinking and drugs, or it's somebody in a bar or wherever else, yeah. getting in your face about whatever. Rageaholic, would you call yourself yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, because I, I go from this real fun drunk a lot of times, you know, to immediately snapping and turning and wanting to fight. I grew up with a dad like that. He had two settings, calm and explode. Yeah. There, was, there, was no, there were no levels in between those two settings, and you just never know when the explosion was going to occur, so you're walking around like, I mean, you walk around the house like it's a minefield, and it yeah. uh, sounds to me like that could have been how your family led yeah. each day. The reason I asked about whether you knew while you know, the blinding rage that, that they talk about, mm -hmm. where you just see one outcome from what you're doing. We talk in AA about thinking through the drink. I often wonder if people who are rageaholics ever think through the rage. Yeah, I, I, never, I never thought through anything. Huh. It's all just about short term. Yeah, instant gratification, I guess. So how long were you married to your first wife before you got divorced? Uh, maybe three years. And then your second wife? One year. One year? Yeah. And you've been on your own since then? Yeah. So what's that been like raising a, raising a kid or having a kid in your life now? Now that I'm sober? Yeah, now that you're sober. Um, it's a blessing. What it's, was it like before you got sober? Uh, I mean, I didn't see my kids a whole lot before I got sober. Um, it, when I was married to... So my, my daughter, um, I just never saw her a whole lot. And then... She's from your first marriage? Well, she's from a one-night stand. Okay, she is. Okay. But my son from my wife, uh, my ex-wife, we were together. He was two years old when we split up. Mm -hmm. And then when we split up, I just, I would see him once or twice a year. I pretty much turned into my dad, you know, as far as how often I saw my kids. And how long was that before you got sober? Well, he's 13 now. So, so 11, 10, 11 years yeah. before you got sober? Mm -hmm. And you saw him periodically yeah, between then? Yeah, once or twice a year. How did you feel about that? I know how you, you, you I, I can sense how you felt about your daughter, but how about with your son? What, what were your feelings around that, only being able to see him infrequently? I mean, I hated it. Yeah. I, hated, I hated not seeing him. But I didn't hate it enough to to see him. I guess if it made sense. Um, and all, the reason I didn't see him was because he was, you know, I was in Louisiana. He was in Texas. They moved to Texas. Yeah. And any money I had went to went to drinking and, and, and drugs. So I wouldn't have money to. I wouldn't even have gas money to travel to see him. And I knew that. Like I, you know, I know. Okay, if I drink this weekend, I'm not gonna be able to go and see my son but I'd still choose to drink. That sounds like a kind of a really tough way to live life. Yeah. Yeah. At what point did you start to acknowledge that you had a problem? I mean, I, I knew I had a problem <laughs> since I was a teenager. I was more of a, a, a bragger of having a problem. <laughs> I was proud of having a problem. Yeah. I, I know it sounds funny and weird. And no, I, I get I, uh, it. I get it. Yeah. But... I knew I was an alcoholic, I knew, you know, and I knew I, 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 some kind of drug addict, and, and I didn't care. I didn't want to change. We'll be right back. 
My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. Did you ever, before you got sober in AA, did you seek out help? And what, what did that look like along I, the way? Never. Never? No. Wow. And what happened when people confronted you on it? Did uh, people you cared about or? Most, most people didn't confront me. They, they were just scared of me. You know, I'd have, I'd have family be like, hey, you can't come to our house for, for Christmas no more. Just, you're not welcome at our house. But they, mm. would, they wouldn't. I'd be like, why? Well, you just kind of cause too much trouble when you come because you, when you drink. And you sound like a real social outcast. Yeah. Were you? I was, like I said earlier, I was fun until I wasn't fun. I was, I was, I was, I had two speeds, like you said earlier. Um, I'd go from fun to really mean really fast. And then you pour alcohol and drugs on top of that feeling that's innate anyway. I mean, to me, alcohol only fuels the feelings that I already had. Yeah. And, you know, I, and that's another thing. Uh, times that I wasn't drunk or high, I didn't act like that. And you were able to keep a roof over your head during that time? You were able to stay employed? Yeah, I was always able to get a job, maybe not keep a job. You know, when I got out of prison in 2007, I, mm-hmm. I, I, um, I got a job at, at, uh, working for an air conditioning company mm-hmm. for about five months. And then I got a job in a cabinet shop. And I actually had that job for six years. And I, and I drank and got high the whole time. And luckily it was just a, a, me and the guy that owned the cabinet shop. Mm-hmm. And I would steal his lumber and sell it and steal stuff the whole time. And I don't know, he still kept me around. Actually, that was one of my amends I made. And what, what did that amend look like? So that amends, you know, I went to him and uh, I'm sure he knew, but I still told him, I said, hey, I said, I don't know if you know this, but you know, while I was working f- for you, I stole a lot of lumber and I uh, stole a couple of tools. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I want to make it right. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly how much money value it is, but we can figure it out and, and I'll pay you. And he told me, no, he said, I don't want your money. He said, I just want to see you, see you be sober. So that was kind of a, uh, that was kind of cool, you know. That was my, that was actually my first amend that I made uh, on my list. So that kind of made me feel good about the rest. I'm like, whoa, that was a breeze. Did you get a sense of God's grace at that moment when he did that? Yeah, I did. It was a it was a weight off because you know I mean I, I here I am sober for three months when I started making my amends. Mm-hmm. I don't I'm not sure if I had a job yet or not. So it was a big relief and I just like yeah I thought it was a God thing, and not to jump ahead, but I'll tell you what really made a God thing is the, the same the same my same boss he was a Christian at at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, just recently he reached out to me, oh, asking right. for help because he he said he thinks he has a problem so. 
Now that's where I felt a God thing. Yeah, that is a God thing. That's one of those moments of, of grace that we feel. Uh, they call them God coincidences or coincidences. They're, they're just the times at which, for no other reason than God's presence, do these things happen in our lives. So you're leading this life of drinking and drugging. You're able to stay employed, so you're, you're not out living on the streets necessarily. What were the days and weeks leading up to your coming into the program like? Yeah, so the last, I would say the last two or three months before I, before I checked myself into um, a rehab, those were a lot of blackout days. I didn't go to work. Uh, I was missing work a lot uh -huh. in, the, in the last three months of active uh, use. Mm -hmm. I was wrecking a lot. I was, my car, I mean, it was banged up. I, and not other cars, but I was constantly running into bridge rails and like, getting blowouts from hitting curves like every day i was i was drinking i was taking volume and and i was doing cocaine every day hmm. for three months straight well i mean which i've been doing that for years but not seven days a week but i got to where the last three months i was doing that seven days a week and by this point you're already in your middle 40s or yeah, 44, getting 44 yeah. years old oftentimes we feel the difference age-wise, the, the way I was able to use at 18 wasn't the same way I was able to use at 28, and things changed with the drinking and the drug use. It, was it that way for you to any extent, or did you get the same satisfaction from using that you had before? No, yeah, the recovery time would be longer, and then, yeah, I would have to do more and more uh, stu you know, stuff to, to feel the effects. Did you have withdrawals from the, when you stopped? Yeah. So you had to keep drinking? Well, yeah, and even when I decided to take that drive from New Orleans to Houston, um, I was, like I said, I was in a hotel for seven days. Detoxing. Detoxing on my own. Wow. And, and that was crazy. I had TikTok videos of me, and I'd always look like I was sweating and, and just dying. So you have a video record of yourself in the final days of your, your using. Yeah. What made you think of going to treatment? Well, the, so, yeah, I never knew much about about rehab or, or AA, it mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, just one of the things that I, I was interested in and I didn't know a lot about it. And the job that I did have, even though I, I don't know how I didn't get fired, but I, was, I, I still had it, even though I was missing so many days, I saw two guys go to rehab at that job. Well, I saw one guy, he went to rehab, and another guy who had a heroin problem, uh, I saw the boss talk to him and, and say, hey, we'll support you, we'll get you to rehab. And I, there was actually one guy in AA that had been sober for like two years working with me. Oh, wow. And I don't know, it was just a mix of seeing how those guys were getting treated and then how the one guy that had been sober, how he, how he was living life in, in the shop, you know. And it, I don't know, I just saw, just from seeing them and, and how, how things were in their life, something just kind of snapped in me and I started, and, and I, don't, I don't know how to explain it. It's kind of a moment of clarity for you? Yeah. So who approached who? Did they approach you or did you approach them or did you just see at a distance and make your own decisions? Yeah, saw it in this and made my own decisions. Huh. Huh. Because a lot of times what happens is before people decide to go into treatment or AA, they check it out with people around them, either friends or even sometimes total strangers when they find out someone's been to treatment or to AA. They'll want to know about it before they actually do it. Yeah, I didn't ask them a whole lot of questions. Yeah. So you're detoxing while you're on your way back to Houston? No, no, no. I went to Houston from New Orleans, drove five hours, 
Right. And I was detoxing in a hotel. For, in Houston. In Houston. Well, actually Conroe, Houston area. Yeah, I get it. And, and the reason I came here was just I just didn't think I could do it in New Orleans. And then my son lived here with his mom, so I wanted to be closer to him. Did they know you were going to be going into treatment? The morning, the morning that I started driving here, uh, I told her that I was looking for a rehab. What was her response? Um, I don't remember, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure she was happy, but. Yeah. So my ex-wife, my son's mom, was always willing to work with me. And she, you know, she was like, hey, if I can do anything, just let me know. You got accepted into the treatment program. What was the what was that experience like? Uh, it was uh, just like a state funded. Uh, so there's some people that's like sentenced there, and other people to just do the state funded, but it's walk-ins. Yeah, state funded treatment center. And I think I was there 36 days. Yeah, that's a state funded treatment center for men, addictions, and alcoholism. What did you find out during that 36 days that made you hopeful? Like as far as what? Just anything. I mean, you're going into treatment. What were your expectations? I don't really know. I don't. I just. I just know my life was was. I just know my life needed to be different. Honestly, I was tired of being broke and tired of just owing money, and I and I knew. I don't, I don't know. That detox must have given you some ideas of what you didn't want in your life, huh? Yeah. I just. I don't know. I, yeah. I just wanted to be a good dad. I wanted to not be in debt. I wanted to stop mm -hmm. being angry. I wanted, to, you know, everything bad about me. I just, I got that. I never cared about it being bad. I, I wanted to get rid of it. Was there a certain point while you were in treatment that you turned the corner and started to see all the good stuff that was ahead of you, as opposed to all the bad stuff that was behind you? Yeah. So you know, for the first couple of weeks in rehab, I was, I guess, just winging it. Right. I was just going. Um, and, and I almost walked out a few times. Why? Cause it was hard. It was just hard. It was it was really hard. It was uh, <laughs> it was really disciplined. And almost I guess after 13 years in prison, I also felt like I was back in a, in prison. Uh huh. And and I was like, man, this this shit ain't gonna work. And uh, I remember I almost walked out. I almost did leave one day, and and one of the uh one of the techs they call them techs that worked there, talked me out of it. What did he say? I don't remember exactly because it was all a haze, but I remember he, you know, he pulled me to the side. He said, man, he said, a lot of these guys mm -hmm. in here, uh, you know, they're, they're forced to be here. They're sentenced here. He said, a lot of these guys ain't going to make it. He said, he said, you might not see it. He said, but I see something in you that's better than what you are. He said, I know you can make it. He said, you, you know, you just got to. Just gotta try, man. Just stay here. Another, you know, it's kind of cliche. Just stay here one more day. Uh huh. And, and I don't know. Just something. He believed in me. A guy that I didn't even know, really. You know, that I only knew for a couple of weeks. He believed in me. And and for the first time in my life, I was sober, seeing that somebody else actually believed in me. And, it, and that's what made me believe in myself at that moment. I think that was a brand new feeling for you, wasn't it? It was, and, and, and ever since then, I don't, I don't think I've ever not believed in myself since that day. It's weird because since then, I've never really struggled in my sobriety. Yeah. And when I say struggle, I mean I've never, uh, you know, recently I've, I've gone through a loss of my mom and, yeah. and other things. But I never once, uh, I never once thought about relapsing. You, you never wanted to go back to drinking to solve that problem. Yeah. I get it. 
Yeah, to me, that's the real sign that you're getting in the program, that you're getting sobriety, is when you're seeing some of these things in front of you, like a death of a parent or some other catastrophic thing. And instead of your first thought being, how can I anesthetize this? It's, I know there's got to be something else I can do. Yeah. Irrespective of what it is. But sounds like his intervention in your life at that point was another one of those God moments for you. Huh? Yeah. So you turned the corner with that, huh? Yeah. So what was the remainder of your time at that facility once you had that kind of turning point? I just, just like the program, I did everything they asked me to do. Mm, you know, mm. I, I, I went to the meetings in there. I paid attention. Um, any kind of, any kind of written work they asked me to do, I did it. Um, every day they would give you, we'd have to do a 30 minute meditation. And 30 minutes of meditation was raking leaves outside in, in, in the grass and, mm. uh, and that was that was pretty cool too, because that's where I really a lot of guys used to hate that. Like, oh, man, there's no leaves out here. What are we raking? And guys couldn't even be quiet for 30 minutes, but I, I really learned how to be quiet in those 30 minutes. Wow! And that was pretty cool. Sounds like it was real therapeutic too. So when you got out of that facility, what what, what was next? So I went to a um, sober living. Sober living. Yeah, I, I, I found a sober living to go straight to from rehab kind of like a halfway house uh-huh. uh, in the third ward. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I stayed there for, for probably a year and a half. Yeah, I stayed I stayed in the house for a year, and then um, they had some apartments over the garage, like, you know, little um, yeah. studio apartments that they ran out, and I went into one of those apartments. And you were continuing to work while you were in that uh, sober living arrangement? Yeah, well, I got a new job here in Houston. So you're in the sober living, you're, you're working, um, you're sober, you're there for a year and a half. Were you going to AA meetings the whole time? Yeah, every day. What did you think about AA versus treatment, or not versus treatment, but I always have concerns about what the handoff is like between the halfway house and having to rely just on AA. What was that experience like for you? Mm, I don't know, I guess the, the rehab I was in kind of, um, it was real similar to what AA is. I mean, it was a 12-step based uh, rehab. So it wasn't a real big difference. I know the rehab facility you're talking about, and it's it's not the bells and whistles, fancy schmancy type rehab. Oh, yeah. yeah, so the first day I walked there, I mean, it's state funded, and it's a lot of inmates or ex-inmates. And uh, the first day I got there, I mean, I drove myself there. Yeah. And I remember walking up and I looked at this place and it's a crap hole. It's like this old crackhead hotel that they turn into a rehab. And I mean, it's nasty. It's it's just run down, but it's crazy. It was, it's what I needed there. So you were in there for a year and a half. I, I'm, I'm curious because you and I go to a couple of the same meetings or have, and I'm going to miss you when you're up in Chicago a lot. But what I wanted to ask you was, at what point did you start coming to some of the meetings that I've been seeing you at? Um, well, I think I actually, the Thursday men's meeting, I, I probably st- started coming not, I mean, almost two years ago. So right right after you got sober, you started coming to that? Well, right after I got out of rehab. I'm, but I, I was working, and I couldn't get off, uh, you know, at yeah, noon a lot. Sure, but sure. I think I, I went once or twice. In my first year sober, I went a couple of times. Yeah, that's cool. And then in my last year sober, I had a lot more... Um, I guess because of my job description, because uh-huh. uh, I became, you know, I'm a foreman, and uh, I was able to get away for lunch a little bit more. 
So I've been able to go to more of those meetings. And then the Sunday night meeting that we went to together tonight, uh, I just kind of found out about that one actually within the last six months. The cool thing about it is that you've added a lot to this meeting, you know, and I've, I've seen how quickly guys take to you and how quickly you've made a lot of friends in this room. And there are a lot of men sitting in this room tonight who take a look at a guy like you wondering how the heck did he do it? You know, some of these younger guys and guys with 30 to 60 days. So you, you got a sponsor when you first came into AA? Yeah, I got a sponsor. I think I got a sponsor the first week I started coming to AA. Okay. Um, and then I fired him about three weeks after I got him. Why'd because, you do that? Because he, ne he never returned my calls. And I think I had told somebody, I was like, hey, I, I got a sponsor. And he's, I called him like five times in the past two or three weeks, and he didn't call back. They're like, man, you need a new sponsor. Uh-huh. So that's when I, I found my, my current sponsor. And how's that working out? Man, I, yeah, and I love him to death, you know? Cool. You know, a lot of times, what whenever I have a guy ask me about sponsorship or do I know someone else who can sponsor him or will I sponsor him? The first question I ask is, have you had a sponsor? And a lot of times what'll happen is they'll say, yeah, I do. But and so I said, well, what, what, what's wrong? What's wrong? And it, sometimes they'll say something like, well, he's too busy to get together with me. Or when I call, he doesn't take my call. Or if I text him, he doesn't text me back immediately. And I say, that's not a sponsorship problem. That's a scheduling problem. Yeah. You know, that's, that's about. And so what I suggest to men when that happens, this is just something you might want to say down the road to somebody who comes to you with the same thing, is that if everything else looks right in the sponsorship, sponsor-sponsee relationship, if you really feel like this guy can help you and it's a matter of him being able to take your call, then arrange for the time that he's going to take your call. Or... You know, if it's about getting together, then you make sure you get the commitment and you, you, you let him know how important his following that commitment is and you'll follow your end and, and, and connect. Sometimes that's made relationships kind of patched the relationship with the original guy together. Sometimes it doesn't work that way because some guys right. will just agree to sponsor anybody who comes along without the real intention because 90% of the guys who you get the numbers to they might call you once or twice, and a lot of me don't ever hear from them. You've probably experienced that. Yeah. Okay, so we were talking about the new sponsors that you got, and he's still your sponsor to this day. Yeah. What did you do first with him? Did you go back through the steps? Had you worked the steps in rehab or anything? No, like no, that? no. How soon did he get you going with the steps? And uh, right, right away. Yeah, I, I think I. Uh, I think I'm not. I don't remember exactly. Man, my the first six months were kind of a, bla a blur, but uh, I think three, about four or five months I, I finished all the stuff. Wow, that's great. That's moving through quickly. Yeah. You, you must have been a real eager beaver. Yeah, I mean, one a week. And then when I got to the fourth step, I think that one took a couple of weeks. <laughs> it almost always does. I wasn't trying to drag it out. And... You've been in AA now for two years. Looking back over those two years, what were some of the high points and low points for you in AA itself? Um, high points, man, it's, it's, it's so many of them, you know, all, all the way up until now where, where I'm facing a, a great opportunity with the company that I started working for right after I got sober, um, to go to relocate to Chicago and just advance, um, mm. in the company. It's just, you know, congratulations on that, by the way. Yeah. Thanks. And, uh, but I mean, the, 
I've seen a lot of people in the, you know throughout sobriety you know say hey don't worry about money or whatever or whatever and whatnot but like man the job the the money I'm you know the freedom that this job has gave me mm-hmm. to be a, to be able to do stuff with my son mm-hmm. um, that I do and stuff I mean that's another high point I mean I, you've got that relationship back yeah I mean we've done so much you know I, I went. For Thanksgiving, I went on a 10-day road trip to the Grand Canyon with him, and, and that was awesome. Um, but, I mean, just there's so many high points in the yeah. program. Not not even just just everything, man. You know, the meeting tonight, the, you know, the guy was um, – the lead was talking yeah. about uh, about being a dad or, or yeah. talking about what the program has taught him. But, I mean, my high point has been every day in this program, you, you guys have been my brothers and my fathers. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't because you know and they, you know they say that we're we're kind of still however many years we drank we're adolescents. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, you take the drinking, the drugging, and the prison time because that stunts your your, your mental growth too. Oh, yeah. Um at 44 years old, man, I was a kid that didn't know how to do anything. Yeah. You know, I didn't even know how to balance a checkbook still. Mhm. And uh but you guys, I mean, you guys teach me how to do everything, man. You guys have taught me how to be a dad. Y'all taught me how to be a friend. You taught me how to speak to people, how to communicate. Yeah. Um, and as far as the low points, uh, you know, bad moments, but not bad days, I guess. And and usually when I ask that question about obstacles or difficulties on the journey itself that really tested or, or strained your resolve to stay sober and stay active in AA, did you ever have a time at which you thought maybe this is too much or not enough? Or I, I had twice. I, I guess you could say two low moments, and, and one of them, you know, I hate to say it, what it wasn't losing my mom. It wasn't that wasn't something uh, that was gonna break me and make me relapse or anything. But you know, I had a low moment right around my one year mark uh-huh. for no reason, and it was crazy. Uh, there wasn't really nothing going on other than I had just got a one you know, my one year chip like two weeks after I got my one year chip and I just hit this moment where I thought uh, I it's it's hard to explain I don't know what triggered that but I I can remember um, just thinking man this ain't this ain't it I don't I don't know yeah I I, I know exactly what you're talking about because. There have been times during my sobriety, and I think early on especially, because I didn't really, really come, I I didn't have my moment of clarity and my turning point until I was sober almost a year. I wasn't doing anything that I needed to do. And, but, you know, there are times when you're thinking, okay, so I've been sober this whole time, but still people are going out and still having a good old time the old way and everything else. And, but it passed. It passed, but not before I had to call my sponsor and talk to two or three people in the program and go to a few more meetings around that time. Birthdays are generally, the, and I'm sure you probably noticed this having had your second birthday, around birthdays can be really kind of squirrely times. And I think, you know, now I think about it, I think that one year mark also, I think it's when I started to, um, because because I came from New Orleans to, to Houston to get sober, and I don't know anybody, and I still have. I think at that moment, I still haven't fully made. Uh, I hadn't fully realized that you guys are my family, mm-hmm. 
So I was still feeling alone at one year. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was feeling alone, like completely alone. Like I was out here by myself. So when you found out you were going to Chicago, you've been up there a few times since? Yeah, yeah, it went, worked. Have you had the opportunity to go to any meetings or find any yeah. meetings up yeah. there? Yeah, yeah, I, I went to meetings pretty much every day. Um, I was up there for five weeks this last time for work and I went to a meeting I think I think every day but I, I could have missed one day and uh yeah they were awesome people pretty friendly yeah meetings are different uh, so that's one thing I have uh so I've worked in Chicago I worked in Las Vegas mm-hmm. um I worked in Denver since I've been sober and I've, I've driven to all of those places so I've stopped along the way also because I don't, you know, I drive seven, eight hours and I stop. So I've got an opportunity to go to meetings in, I think, uh, 12 states. Isn't that in, cool? In two years. Yeah, that's really cool. How, how does that make you feel? It's, it's, it's pretty awesome. You know, in, in this recent, uh, I guess, low point when my mom passed away, um, I, was, I was in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And that was the one thing that really made me feel good was uh, I was in a 430 meeting and I, I came out of the 4.30 meeting and I, I got a text message that my mom had passed away. Mm-hmm. There was no better feeling than, you know, it, it, it dropped me to my knees at the moment. When I got the text, I, I was walking on Grand Avenue in downtown Chicago to my hotel from the, from the coming back from the meeting and it dropped me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I cried for a minute and then I went up to my room and I prayed mm-hmm. and then I went to a meeting and there was no better, I don't know how to explain it, but like without AA, what other situation could I be in, in a foreign state, you know, another state that I'm not from, and I could have a support team for something like that. And that, that was pretty amazing. I know exactly what you're talking about, um, because I faced the same things with my parents' death. My dad, when he passed away, I had just gotten home from getting my 16-year chip at the noon meeting that you and I have gone to. I got my chip, got home in about an hour after I got home, I found out that my dad passed away. I think that night I was back in a meeting and the morning that my mother died about 11 years ago, we went from bedside and I, you know, she breathed her last breath and I closed her eyes. And an hour and a half later, I was in an AA meeting. And there's just something about sharing that kind of thing around the time that it happens with people who really do care. Yeah. It's an amazing feeling, isn't it? It is. It is. And then it's an even more amazing feeling later on. Because, you know, like when I went to a meeting after, and I shared that night, uh, mm-hmm. I got called on to share because I went to a meeting that I'd never been to. And they, mm-hmm. like, and they asked me to share, and I shared that I just lost my mom. And, and it was wild because after the meeting, a few guys talked to me or whatever, and then I left. I got back to my hotel. I was tired. But I went to – that was uh, – Think that was a Tuesday, yeah. And I'll go to this meeting on a Friday night, a completely different place, but in Chicago yeah. downtown. Yeah. So a lot of people, you know, and and when I got to that meeting, somebody walked up to me. They like I didn't share in this meeting, right. but people asked if it was my first time there. You know, yeah. it, anybody's first time being to this meeting, and I shared. I said, Hey, yeah, I'm Jason. I'm an alcoholic, visiting from such and such. And then after that meeting, a guy named uh, Joe walks up to me and say, hey, man, he said, you you the same guy that was at this meeting that uh, Tuesday <laughs> night? And I'm like, yeah. He's, he's like, look, I wasn't there. He said, but, man, all kind of people were talking about that. He said, you know, 
You wow. may not realize it, but but you you uh you set a good example for for other guys wow. in the program because the meeting I went to Tuesday night was actually a lot of newcomers. Yeah, and the message that that sends is so important that we can go through the tough times, and as long as we stay connected to the program, we can get through it. Yeah, it, it may not be, and we don't go skipping through it, man. It's I had a lot of sadness and a lot of grief when I lost my folks, but I was able to share it in a place where. There were people who had experienced it and there were people who hadn't. The people who had experienced it, they were able to respond to me in a certain way. The people who hadn't experienced it, I felt like I was actually giving them the gift of letting them understand and see how I related to that. Right. So that when they have to go through that, they'll know that they can get through it. So it sounds like the same thing for you. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And, uh, you know, I'm still going through I mean, this morning, I went to a meeting this morning at 7 o'clock. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't go to the meeting attending on sharing about my mom because now that's been almost two months. Yeah. But uh, a guy had shared about losing his dad, but before he lost his dad, he got to to be around his dad. And, uh, you know, I shared this one. So I, I didn't see this earlier, but uh, before my mom passed, I hadn't talked to her in, uh, since I was six months sober. Mm. And the last time I spoke to her, I mm. told her I never wanted to talk to her again. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I still deal with that, and I shared about that in the meeting of the day. You didn't go out and drink over it, though. No, I didn't. Yeah, um, it was actually at six months sober. She, uh, I was at my ex-wife's, my son's mom's, and she was she called my ex-wife while I was there to pick up my son, and she uh she was telling my ex my ex-wife he's a piece of crap. He ain't never gonna change. I don't care if he's been mm-hmm. sober six months. And they were on speakerphone. And, you know, the old me wanted to just curse out. Sure. But then even though at six months, y'all taught me not to do that. But I still said, I said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm right here and I could hear what you're saying. She didn't know I was there. I said, I hear what you're saying. I said, uh, I, said I don't want to talk to you again. Mm. You know, I wish I could change that. Well, you know, you can pay it forward. which is the great thing about the program because, you know, we we, we pray for the courage to change the things we can. And sometimes that courage comes in the gifts that we give others, you know. Just being able to share that, can you imagine how liberating that is for people who are walking around with that bottled up inside to hear a guy open up about it and be emotional about it and know that, he never will be able to say to her what he didn't say while she was still here, but he's doing the things now that are of service and that are helping to complete his life in other ways. And he'll never make up for this, but in the bigger scheme of things, you can give back a whole lot that would honor somebody's memory, you know? Mm -hmm. know, Maybe imagining what it would have been like if he sat down with her at five years or however many that you needed to to be able to make whatever amends. Yeah. And amends can be made in lots of ways. I'm sure you, you've been, your sponsors told you that. Yeah. So you got yourself a sponsor up there? Or are you going to continue to talk to, to, uh, to Matt? So, so no, I don't, I don't have a sponsor up there yet. Yeah. Uh, Matt's still my sponsor for now. But I, I do, uh, I will get me a sponsor up there. Yeah. Matter of fact, the guy, the guy I talked about a minute ago, the guy said Joe. 
Yeah. Um, he's got 17 years up there, oh. and I really like him, so I'm probably going to ask him good. and see what he says. Yeah, that's a good thing to do. My spawn, my original sponsor has still been my sponsor all these years later, and what I think we've learned from COVID and, and everything else is that we still can have pretty close relationships to people, even though we might not be able to see them in, in person, but Mike's job has allowed him to come down to Houston somewhat frequently. I'm talking about once every two or three months. Right. So we get together for dinner or breakfast or lunch or something like that. We catch up and we talk during the week. So what I would say to somebody is if you've got a really good relationship with your sponsor that can be maintained on a daily basis by phone calls and texts and other things, uh, don't feel like you have to get rid of that to, to yeah. hook up with someone else. But it is good to have somebody in the flesh who you can go to meetings with and that kind of stuff too. So yeah. I, I really think your idea of, of getting somebody new is, is yeah. a good one. And yeah, well, yeah, especially if, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm, I mean, realistically, I've only been sober two years. Yeah. And, and I understand that that's still uh, at two years. I'm still a baby. So I need that person. To, what I'm saying, yeah. what I mean is I, I know that I need that person to person uh, yeah. sponsorship, you know. Yeah, so so you'll go for it, and and you'll get it done as soon as you can, and and that'll continue to enrich your life. I wouldn't shortchange two years because I mean Bill Wilson was only sober how many years when he started writing the Big Book for for God's sake? I yeah, mean, three years, three and a half years. So at two years, you've got wisdom of being sober for two years, and that's you know one year. 11 months and 29 days longer than the guy who's been sober just a couple of days. Yeah. And you can give a lot back. I see you doing it though. You sponsoring some guys yourself right now? Not right now. Not I've had, uh, I think I've had in, in two years, I've had about 15 sponsees. Yeah. And not one of them has stuck around for longer than the first step with me. Okay. Um, and I actually today, it's funny you say that because, uh, I told my story in Chicago. Yeah. Um, right before when I was working there, the last yeah. day I was there, I told my story at a uh -huh. meeting there, and I had a guy that mm -hmm. was uh, a guy that was at that meeting, um, found me on Facebook, yeah, and then asked for my phone number, and called me today and asked me to be a sponsor when I move in two weeks to Chicago. Cool. cool. And he has about forty something days. That's great. And the great the great thing about it is that. The gift that you got out of 15 guys that you ended up not sponsoring beyond whatever point, the great gift is that, guess what? Yeah, I'm still sober. Yeah, that's it. And I'm glad you're sober and I honor your sobriety and um, you and I don't know each other all that well, but I feel like just being able to share with you tonight makes me respect and, like I say, honor your commitment to stay sober. My hope is that when you come down to Houston, you'll check in with us at these Definitely. meetings and that you'll stay in touch because there are a lot of guys down here. You're, you're a pretty popular guy, especially with that Thursday night group that gets together for dinner because I'm on that little, uh, well, it's not little, there's like 30 guys on that, on that phone chain. There's always guys talking about Cajun Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to think you're going to continue to use that moniker when you're up in Chicago? Well, in Chicago, they, so in, in Houston, people call me Cajun Jason because y'all have a few Cajuns here. Right. It's not that far from Louisiana. Right. In Chicago, they just call me Cajun because I'm the only one. <laughs> oh, jeez. 
<laughs> so they don't have to, they don't have to, you know, you don't have to put a name behind it. Yeah, yeah. Well, sooner or later, people are going to want to know your name is Jason, too. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you're the only one. Uh, listen, I've, I've really enjoyed doing this. Good luck with everything in Chicago. In the meantime, I love you. You're a good man and a brother in the program. Someone whose sobriety I admire and know that is very important to not only you, but the men that you touch. So again, just thanks a million for doing this. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Jason S., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please take a minute to give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will help others find it. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. 